Uh, just to say a little bit of a word about society, um, uh, particularly for our fellows who don't see so often. And thank you very much to our fellows for, for joining us tonight, um, and to Peter for very kindly agreeing uh, to talk to us and, and with us, I hope. And um, we will move swiftly on to that. I thought rather than give you any kind of sort of potted history of society, I'd just tell you a little bit about what we've been doing today. Um, we have a number of, large number of council members with us. Since 10 o'clock this morning, we've been having what euphemistically was called an away day, but we had an away day at home. Um, but um, <coughs> it's the first time, I think, certainly in my history, um, that we've ever done it, and we devoted the entire day to a sort of strategy thinking session. And we have had a remarkable day, I think. Um, we very much turned things around so that every member of council was making a presentation to other members of council on a variety of different issues, um, and we've looked at we've looked at our finances, which are good. Um, uh, Helen Carasso and William Locke worked together on a sort of Vision 2020 for us, which also mapped out the higher education landscape. We've had a long discussion about membership <coughs> and impact. Uh, we've also looked at uh, diversity issues and at um, international engagement and engaging with other disciplines. We've teased out a huge amount of you know, avenues and areas of things where uh, we think there's much more we can do, there's a greater connectivity we can establish. And in that regard, um, Leslie Gurley and Kelly Coates have taken us through our currently pathetic failure to use social media in any way possible. Um, and I think we've uh, tried to think of the polite way that we've had the kick up that we needed to, um, to move ourselves forward. And Ian and Karen have also talked to us very interestingly about new areas of engaging with um, neurodivergers uh, and staying engaged with them as they as they continue through. Um, what we will be doing, Bob Burgess also will be back later on, unfortunately he's been with us during the day. Bob is our new president, taking over from David Watson. Uh, he gave us a very interesting perspective, particularly on political and other engagement and some ideas um, from his perspective on things that we might do. So all of that will be pulled together in a document for council, and I hope that that document, once it's been through council, it's been refined, will then become... You can come to the front, please, latecomers, because... <laughs> 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 Actually, at the front. Please turn your mobile phones off. <laughs> I've already got mine off. <laughs> it was his fault. <laughs> it was her fault. So what I hope will happen is that once we've refined that with council, we'll be able to put it out as a more general document that we were talking about, sort of, you know, SRHE 2020, it's fairly sort of happy, but nonetheless it's a realistic horizon to be working to. Uh, and it will be interesting, we intend to sort of share that much more widely. Um, I'd hope to have, have some input from you. So I think we've, uh, um, it very much was a forward-looking and very uh, innovative, imaginative, and I'm, you know, very grateful to the council members for all the work that went into doing it and look forward to, to sharing it with you. So we are in good shape and good heart, and I'm very pleased, um, I think Peter's less pleased when I asked him if he would give um, the talk to the fellows annual meeting today, but I'm very delighted that he's able to do so, because people are always asking if we can have Peter at an SRHE event, and I'm delighted to say that he has also accepted, I'm so excited, uh, to be a new Vice President of the Society, um, and uh, I'd like to say how grateful we are for that. Peter's going to talk for about 35, 40 minutes, max, we'll have some discussion, and then we will just um, go back outside to have a drink for those of you who've decided it was too early to start, uh, and just have a bit of social time with you. So thank you very much for coming, and Peter, thank you for talking to us. <coughs> Uh, well, thank you, Helen. Um, I'm very pleased to be invited, but I am slightly suspicious because I was invited quite late in the day. And there's always that suspicion, isn't it, if you're invited late in the day, because Helen's a very efficient person, she, would, she wouldn't leave things adrift, would she? Um, but if you're invited late in the day, that you're kind of first reserve, or perhaps second reserve, or even worse, who knows. Um, anyway, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to talk on this topic. Um, and maybe the vice president was meant to be an extra sweetener. <laughs> 
case I said no. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to say no if, if <laughs> you're also told you're, you're, you can be a vice president. Um, anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased to talk because it's a kind of important topic. Um, uh, I, mean, that's, I chose a title, I mean, Searching for Impact, Striving for Influence. I think I'm going to talk more about striving for influence than, than, than searching for impact. This impact now has a rather special meaning um, because of the RAF. Um, but I think this is an issue that we've been kind of worrying away at for a long, long time. Um, feeling that our research is not actually listened to as much as it should be. Um, uh, uh, occasionally, I think we kind of exaggerate. I mean, I think we feel that higher education research has got a really special problem. You know, we're ignored even more than other people. Um, and we imagine that researchers in other fields have better lines of communication with policymakers. Um, I'm not convinced of that at all. I mean, I think um, we're all pretty much on a par. Um, there are various reasons, which I want to come on to in a minute, um, why things don't, why policymakers don't pay a lot of attention to research. Um, uh, so I don't think we should feel specially disadvantaged, um, uh, feel particularly sorry for ourselves. Um, despite recent evidence, I think you could look at recent evidence of the, the Brown Report and the White Paper, which was certainly they research light, if not research-free, zones. Um, so maybe that's kind of heightened our suspicions that would be marginalised. But I think if you look at it in the broad, we're not. I mean, I think people in housing, in other areas, would have many of the same feelings we have about um, the fact that uh, politicians don't always pay as much attention as they should to our research. Um, and having mentioned Brown and the White Paper, obviously I've got very strong views about that, but I'm not here to critique that in any way. Um, uh, I'm not here at all to be ideological this evening. Um, so really what I want to talk about are these things. First of all, what's the problem? What do we think the problem is? Um, uh, because I'm not sure we've specified it in enough detail. Um, the problem being in broad terms that our research doesn't have the impact and influence that we would like. Um, uh, now, there are lots of strands in that, I think, um, uh, and I'll come on to those in a bit. So I think it's not a single problem. I think there are kind of several different problems here. Then I want to talk about them, the policymakers, the politicians, the officials, the funding council people, and so on. Um, and here I want to talk about changing policy cultures. Um, because it's often easy to imagine that politicians and policymakers more generally can decide pretty much what they want. And in fact, they live very, very constrained existences, probably more constrained than us. And let me just give you an example. We all complain in higher education about the impact of a new visa regime from the UK Borders Agency on international student recruitment. Um, uh, David Willits and Vince Cable kind of appear to support us but the bottom line is, of course, that the Home Office is much, much higher in the Whitehall pecking order than Biz. And actually, David Willits and Vince Cable have probably only marginally more influence than we do. They can't really change. So the policy world is actually very, very constrained, and I want to talk a bit about that later. Then I want to talk about us, you know, the world, the domain of research, because there's an awful lot of changes taking place there as well, many of which are actually quite contradictory, I think. Um, but that has also has an impact, potentially, on uh, our, our, the impact and influence of our policy. Um, and then finally, I want to talk about what is to be done, the good old Leninist principle, what is to be done here. Um, uh, and that's very difficult. I'm, I'm going to kind of map out one or two scenarios, well, three or four scenarios. Um, uh, and I suppose the fundamental issue there is... is is it just, do we just need to up our game a bit, make our research a bit more kind of policy, politician, policymaker friendly? Um, uh, or do we actually need to fundamentally change actually what we're researching into and how we research it and the topics uh, and so on? So those are the things I want to talk about. Uh, I'm not going to talk for an hour and 15 minutes, I can assure you of that. I mean, uh, I think 30 minutes is probably a bit closer to it. Right, so what's the problem? Um, well, I think we do worry about the kind of, you know, the, the kind of academic status of higher education as a field. Um, we worry about this quite a lot. Um, uh, 
We worry about our situation in the wider domain of educational research, which is not always the case. I mean, sometimes higher education research is located more in business schools and that kind of environment. Um, but there are many of us who want to kind of break out of the kind of the educational research kind of ghetto uh, and see ourselves more broadly. Um, we worry about the proportion of kind of world-leading four-star research. I think we worry particularly about capacity um, uh, and sustainability <coughs> of the research base. Uh, I think we all feel it's rather weak um, uh, and it doesn't take many people to kind of exit from the higher education research field to make a big, big difference. Um, and that maybe is one difference between higher education and some other fields, um, that we're actually rather weakly institutionalised. Um, uh, the, the latest call from the SRC for, for research centres and major grants did amazingly mention higher education as one of the topics that they might be interested, interested in. One of about 11 or 12, I seem to remember, and they're only going to fund eight centres. So the chance of higher education um, getting one of those centres, I guess, is, is not that good. On the other hand, just to be mentioned, I suppose, is, is something. Um, so I think we do worry about kind of academic status and academic respectability and where we actually fit. Um, then I think we worry quite a lot about impact on, on kind of practice, us, institutions. I mean, practice, not simply in terms <coughs> of learning and teaching strategies um, and the student experience, but more broadly, I think, in terms of kind of corporate strategies. Um, but sometimes the sense that our research is not taken as serious as it should be is pretty close to home, actually. Sometimes in our own institutions, they're not terribly interested in research evidence when they're constructing their plans and strategies. Um, so that's the second thing I think we worry about. And the third thing, of course, is the main thing I want to talk about, and that's the influence on policymaking, um, uh, policy research, evidence-based policy talk a bit more about evidence-based policy. Some people might think this is a bit of an oxymoron, you know, you can't really have evidence-based policy. Evidence and policy really belong in quite different worlds. So that's the sort of part of the problem. Um, and then another part of the problem is kind of um, what I call nostalgia on the one hand and resentment on the other. Um, nostalgia that it was great once, you know, it was all very different. Um, there's this myths of kind of, you know, 19th century grand Victorian reforms and blue books and so on. Uh, the Robbins Committee, the Plowden Report, which sometimes was seen, I think, as the kind of the apex of a kind of uh, a, a, a report that had a big influence um, on the nature and structure of, high, of, of not high, of primary education, like it, but was actually pretty fully informed by a lot of research. Um, but then if we sort of pause a bit and say, well, Robbins had a very impressive kind of research apparatus behind it. But at the end of the day, some of the central recommendations of Robbins were rejected. Um, now, Michael will remind us, of course, in the end, Robbins came right. You know, the Robbins formula kind of from the 1990s onwards, in a sense, was reinstated. For 20, 25 crucial years, we were pursuing quite a different policy. Um, uh, and I'm not sure what the evidence, the research base was for the Woolwich speech uh, and the creation of the polytechnics. I mean... I think if you actually look at what happened then and how that policy evolved, there wasn't a lot of research evidence getting into it, I can tell you. And again, if you look at a lot of the research evidence underpinning Robbins, it was contextual, it was analytical. It actually wasn't prescriptive. And maybe that's an important distinction. I mean, are we, if we talk about policy research, are we coming up with policy prescriptions, sort of recommendations to politicians of what to do? Or are we simply kind of informing them about the context and the environment and, and, and analysing the kind of options they might have, but in a sense being a bit agnostic about what the policy <coughs> descriptions might be. So I think there's a lot of kind of nostalgia, you know, and like all golden ages, all golden times, actually they never really existed. Um, well, I'll qualify that in a bit. I mean, I think there probably was a bit more respect at certain times in the past for research evidence than there is now. But that's got a lot to do with the changing political and policy-making culture. Um, and then, of course, we feel a bit conned, because there's an awful lot of talk about evidence-based policy. Um, uh, but I think there's a sort of feeling that actually this is not really what's happening. It's just a kind of mantra. Um, you decide the policy, and then you accumulate the evidence to kind of justify the policy, not the other way around. Um, 
Uh, and there's a sense that maybe we've been turned into kind of collaborators of some kind, um, that we're there as kind of hired hands to justify and support policies which have been developed for quite different reasons, for quite different rationales than the quality of our research. And there's also the kind of the also the, the more practical problems, the treadmill of short-term grants, very perhaps over-specified research projects, where almost in the call there's a kind of they tell you pretty much broadly what the answer is, um, uh, and that again I think compromises our integrity uh, as, uh, as as researchers. So that's my kind of feeling about what the problem is, and it's actually quite complicated. I think there are lots of different strands in it. Then if I come on to the second thing, then, 21st century policymaking. But first of all, presentism, by which I mean that politicians and policymakers live in a very intense present. Um, the past doesn't matter very much. Um, uh, uh, looking at Mike here and his recent very impressive book, I would have to say, a lot of that is completely closed book, frankly, to people who are now making policy. They don't know what happened in the past. Um, I remember the 1981 cuts. Mike remembers the 1981 cuts. Several of us in this room, 1981 I suspect there are probably very few people in the department now who know what you're talking about when you say that. So there's no historical perspective. Um, and that's important for two reasons. I mean... First of all, I think it's important to have a historical perspective. It puts things in context. And secondly, more practically, sometimes, you can, if you have that historical perspective, you can see things that were great ideas didn't work that well. Um, but now I think policymakers start pretty much with a blank sheet. If anything, they have a prejudice against the past. You don't really learn from the past. The past is the problem, if I can put it like that. But also they live in a very intense present in a sense that sort of the same applies to the future. Um, because, and I'll talk a bit more about this later, um, most politicians particularly, but, and policymakers who are now more enthralled to politicians than they perhaps were in the past, um, they're not that interested in what's going to happen in five years' time. I mean, if you look at the current political climate, no one is really interested in what's going to happen except for the next 24 months to the next election. That's about it. Um, uh, so many of the things which sort of appall us, that you know, all the unintended consequences, the fact that things don't work out, or that they seem to produce the opposite effects from the ones that were intended, I don't think politicians worry so much about that. Because they actually, it's beyond their time horizon. Um, it's, you know, it's the old Keynes saying, in the long term we're all dead. But actually they're going to be dead pretty quickly, some of them, so they're not very interested in what happens. And then, allied to that is what I call presentationalism, um, that presentation is not all, but a lot more than it used to be. So, simple tests. You look at how white papers in the past look when you get them out of the library, and these are these rather dusty documents, HMSO and so on, um, pretty undifferentiated. And look at a kind of a white paper or a policy document now, um, well, they're all glossy. Um, uh, in fact, I think the uh, 2011 white paper on higher education was quite restrained compared to many ones, which look like kind of sales brochures. Actually, to be fair to the business, it didn't look particularly like a sales brochure. It was quite slickly done, but it was... Um, so that's one example. But the other example is, I think that if you're a minister or advising ministers, um, the great fear is how this is going to play tomorrow. Um, and the great hope is how this is going to play tomorrow in the TV news or whatever. And this is why we get so many half-baked policies. Take our attitudes to immigration in this country. This is seen as tapping into a kind of atavistic kind of daily mail type agenda. And therefore it's very important. Focus groups will have told them this is very important. Now the fact that it's a complete mess, that they've had to include international students in it, or they did by accident, that they forgot that many people come from other parts of the European Union and therefore have rights in this respect. That, that, so it's all a mess, sorting it out in reality. But that doesn't matter, because actually it's driving along this kind of agenda, which is seen in focus group terms as one that kind of touches 
a political nerve. Now, maybe they've got that completely wrong, but that's what's motivating them. So there's no point saying, look, this policy is incoherent, it's inconsistent, it's not really working very well. Or else, to make it work in headline terms, you've got to do things which are really damaging. But they say, yeah, I might believe all that. But it actually doesn't matter, because what I'm concerned about, or what my bosses are concerned about, is kind of addressing this very kind of simple um, kind of agenda relating to immigration. Um, it might be slightly better, paradoxically, under the coalition government, but at least you have a bit more diversity among ministers. I mean, after all, Vince Cable is a Liberal Democrat and David Willits is a Conservative. Um, I think this kind of con PR control system, of course, as we all know, we've all seen the kind of uh, the, the, the TV spoofs taking off. I mean, it's the kind of the Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell complete control. Um, and what motivated departments then was Alistair Campbell ringing up the, probably the minister direct, not even going to the kind of his opposite number, and telling he made a complete mess of it, you know. Um, and that would actually inculcate a lot of fear in the House of Ministers. So that's the kind of world in which ministers operate. Um, and I think that's the reason why we have kind of highly mediatized, kind of media-intensive politics. The media, they, they sort of play back what they see is really quite simple messages. Um, as many of you know, I spent half my career as a journalist. And what you soon learn as a journalist is news is familiar, it's not new. Because if it's new, and it's not what the other papers are printing, your news editor won't be interested. You have to actually confirm the kind of line. It has to, there are a few very simple stories. I've mentioned immigration, there are others, scroungers, whatever, you know. Um, spies, maybe, if you read The Guardian. I mean, whatever. There's these very simple stories, um, uh, and everything has to conform to that. Um, so again, I mean, it's not that politicians or policymakers are stupid people and ignorant and don't know other things. It's just that that is the imperative which is kind of controlling their lives. And that creates an about what I call permanent revolution policy. Um, uh, and because, So we have to have constant cycles of reform and modernization um, in a way that was rather unfamiliar in the past. I mean, I suppose in the grand Victorian days or the 20th century, there was a sense about the kind of stately march of progress, things getting better and reform in that sense. Reform now is in a very different sense. I mean, it's, it's something instant, it happens quickly, it's in, it, it, it trashes the past nearly always, um, it sets up some headline goals, which may never be realised, but it doesn't matter. So reforms take on quite a different connotation. Um, and it's not surprising that research finds it more difficult to inform that kind of policy making, um, uh, because research probably can't help too much. Um, then there's the rise of the lobbies and think tanks, I mean, partisan research, research which in a sense arises very much from a particular perspective. Um, we all know broadly what the political affiliations of the major think tanks are, although I must say that IPPR is drifting very rapidly right, which is slightly discouraging. Uh, but nevertheless, we know where they're coming from. Um, uh, uh, they're not only partisan, they're also simplifiers of policy. I mean, their messages, they understand probably better than we do in universities, the kind of the key messages, the dominant stories, the small number of dominant stories that drive politicians. Um, and they tailor their research, fashion their research to deal with that. Then these fourth or fifth points are sort of paradoxical. We live in a kind of society where there seems to be a lot of ideological edge, um, a strong sense of them and us. And if you're defined as them, your views are just pretty much discounted. Um, uh, uh, and you can see it in personal relationships. I mean, I thought it was fascinating looking yesterday, the kind of performance of George Osborne on the one side and Ed Balls on the other. And this is a brawl, really. I mean, no one was attempting to say anything truthful or accurate or being fair. They were brawling with each other. Um, and that's sort of interesting, because I think if you look at many other societies, the United States might be a, a bit like us, so maybe this is a kind of Anglo-American phenomenon, but if you look at the rest of Europe, People do not brawl in politics quite as much. Um, even Berlusconi's kind of enemies on the left, sort of, you know, there's a, sort of a different kind of tone, I think, to the conversation. But then, paradoxically, this brawling goes on with an incredibly narrow policy consensus, a kind of neoliberal consensus, which is very narrow. Um, 
We don't think beyond that box much at all. Um, and again, I think if you look at some other countries, they have a broader, a more open sense of what actually can be policy direction. Um, so we have this very antagonistic, brawling kind of culture, which does not encourage reflection or respect for research evidence, but obviously. But at the same time, the answers have to operate within a very narrow ideological spectrum. And that, again, I think, produces real constraints for us. Um, and finally, objectives and outcomes. We're driven by these. You know. And we're told, we've been told for a long time, we live in an audit society. Um, and people like Michael Parr have written about rituals, the verification at the kind of higher level. Um, we're all familiar with the kind of, you know, the decline in trust. I mean, trust. Now, maybe that's part of this. We don't need to take things on trust. We can appear to check them through lead tables and data returns and so on. Um, pretty misleading, that I would often say. Um, uh, and then I think there's a sense that um, it's more than trust. I mean, we moved, I think, from what I would call to, to a very strictly operational mode. Um, uh, and research is not all normative. We're not actually expressing views in a kind of partisan sense. But it is about opening up different ways of looking at this problem. Um, and a lot of the research that's required by policymakers is rather different. It's very operationally focused. What will work? The sort of big questions are predetermined. We're not allowed to open those up, those questions. We just have to accept those as given and then concentrate on how things work. Um, I think I may have said to you before, um, uh, I think this applies more broadly, not just to research, but to the way universities are perceived. Um, I can remember in my days at Kingston, um, we had a, a, a biz civil servant spend some uh, four weeks in the university on a kind of, quotes, immersion program, um, finding out what, it's, what it was like. Um, and it was fine. We got on very well. They, they seemed to enjoy themselves. But what kind of shocked me was the letter I got, the letter of thank you I got from their boss, which said that X, this person, had had a wonderful time working in a delivery organization. And I thought, that's a bit odd. A university is not a delivery organization, but that is actually how a lot of politicians see us. We're delivery organizations. The agenda has been determined, and we're there to deliver it. Now, if that's true of higher education more generally, I think it's certainly true of research. A lot of research is about delivery, making delivery more effective or, or, or making... So when they say impact, that's what they mean. Um, anyway, that's them. Uh, and I think if that's the kind of the world in which politicians and policymakers are operating, it's not surprising that this is a world which is not that conducive to reflecting on policy options. Um, looking at the evidence, perhaps being convinced by the evidence to take alternative views of the future. But they can't really do that. I don't mean intellectually they can't do that, but they are constrained, so they can't do it. So that's them. Um, but the interesting thing is there's been a lot of changes with us as well. Oops. Yeah. Us. Well, first of all, there's all the kind of writing and, 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 and discussion about more open knowledge production systems. And I've been implicated myself in some of this mode two and all that kind of stuff. Um, the triple helix. There are various, various kind of formulations of this. Um, and in a way, none of it is very surprising in a more knowledge-intensive society. You would expect kind of research and knowledge generation to be seen in rather different terms from a society in which knowledge was a more rationed commodity. Um, so we're all familiar with the kind of things, so the, the contextualization of knowledge, the wider social distribution of knowledge, the difficulty of distinguishing or privileging particularly the producers of knowledge, researchers, from the users of knowledge, and perhaps the key group I would call the brokers, the knowledge brokers, the people who are playing around with it, kind of trading between us and them. Um, so that's a lot's happening there. Um, now, it sort of sounds good. It sounds sort of democratic. You know, we are all researchers now. Um, maybe we're not great researchers, but we're all researchers. You know? And that should at least um, make us think more in terms of the evidence for things um, and bother about researching things. Um, not sure it always has that effect. But at the same time, there's a kind of contrary trend, which again, we're all very familiar with, particularly months before the REF. And that's the kind of intensification 
of the kind of research culture, and particularly the management of research in universities. Um, uh, the RE, the REF, is a very powerful tool in the hands of university managers. Um, it gives them a way into areas where previously there was much more autonomy and much more choice. Um, to take an example, which is pretty current, um, uh, uh, open source publishing, um, and the one that Janet Finch's committee, the route that they opted for, the gold route, um, which basically is about institutions would sort of, okay, you'd get your journals free, you wouldn't be paying a subscription for anymore, but you would have to pay. There'd have to be a kind of user fee, how it was described. Um, now think of the implications of that. I mean, why should a university pay for someone to have their work published when this is, say, a person that is not going to be entered in the RAF? There's choices. I mean, these are very, very powerful kind of management tools. And that's just one example. There are lots of things around the RAF process. Uh, and that's linked, of course, with the kind of the way that research is operated. I mean, um, in a sense, we cannot afford not to be pretty specialist. I mean, because of my odd background as a journalist, I can kind of flit around a bit. But most researchers can't flit around a bit. They have to make their name in a particular area. Um, and it has to be cumulative. You've had a successful research grant in that area, so that leads on to another research grant in that area. PhD students come to you because they know that's what you write about. And so, so it's a kind of narrowing, um, uh, which I think has been intensified by this kind of strong management culture. And then, of course, there have been big things like kind of new professions called para-research professions have been created. I mean, I think universities are spending a lot of time now getting people um, uh, to write impact studies. It's becoming a kind of semi-professionalized occupation, um, as in fact this happened to bid writing, research bid writing. Before. So the old idea that somehow researchers themselves are doing this, actually no, not so much now. Many of these things, there are lots of a kind of panoply of para-research professions which have developed under that. So you have these two trends, and they're, they're quite potentially contradictory. I mean, I think there are ways you can reconcile them, um, but, uh, but nevertheless, they seem to me to create significant tensions. And then that's the kind of age-old kind of dispute. What is education? Is education a social science, or is it basically a professional field? Um, uh, and higher education, I think, is also torn by that dilemma. Um, uh, are we sort of researcher practitioners, practitioner researchers, or are we fully-fledged social scientists? Um, and there are, there's lots riding on that. I mean, do we see higher education research as kind of cognitively grounded in theory, in ideas, um, basically organized in terms of disciplinary affiliations? Or do we see it as kind of a problem practitioner orientated? Um, and a lot of the push of the first one, the open measure, is to push us into this problem practitioner focus more strongly. Um, and maybe that relates to the, also to the possibility of effective critiques, the imagining of alternative futures, different kinds of policies. Um, because if you see yourself as belonging to a field which is an autonomous academic discipline with its own kind of sense of justifications, I think the ability to uh, develop critiques is stronger than if you see yourself as simply the kind of the more knowledge intensive arm of a, a kind of practitioner policy community um, where actually it's quite difficult to say that you because you're actually engaging a rather specialized research function have a special right to kind of stand against uh, their, 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 their agendas um, so that's the things happening to us um, uh, and if you take the kind of what's happening in the kind of policy making world and what's happening in the kind of research world there have been big big shifts in both um, so it's not surprising that if we're talking about how policy should be influenced by research, we need to rethink a lot of these things um, uh, because the old terms, the old categories, won't always work. Um, then I'll talk about varieties of higher education research. Well, I'm pretty skeptical about these traditional demarcations that we're all hung up on higher education research. There's kind of policy research, um, and then there's kind of you know more practitioner kind of learning and teaching student experience. 
I mean, obviously there are significant differences. I mean, there are people who write about, like Ron, who writes about philosophical issues. Um, uh, there are some people who, who try to write about kind of social theory in relation to higher education. Um, then there's a very strong policy and history strand, I think. Um, history, you have to disguise that as kind of, you know, something else, because, of course, um, publishers don't like history much. If uh, there's nothing turns off a publisher more than saying you want to write a history book. I don't know how Mike ever got his book no. published, frankly. <laughs> um, and then the third strand, of course, is the learning and teaching, which is now shifting much more into kind of the student experience, in the broader sense. Um, I link to these kind of variety of topics, and I think that's a very crude characterization. You could think of many strands, and as I said, I would, to some extent, emphasize the kind of unity of the field and the kind of links between them. Um, after all, there's an awful lot of policy and learning and teaching. Um, there's almost more policy and learning and teaching in the student experience than there is in what we saw as the traditional policy topics, writing about systems and funding and so on. Because maybe in a kind of at least a kind of quasi-market system, these issues become less interesting because no one's planning the system as a whole. Well, they pretend they're not planning the system as a whole. Um, funding is not centrally driven. Um, so those issues become, in a sense, more secondary. And it's actually what happens in the institution, particularly in relation to the student experience. If you see one of the major drivers, of course, is attracting students, the branding of the institution, um, uh, and all those, those, those sort of things. Um, so I don't think by any means these are kind of watertight uh, And then I suppose there's a bit of a division in terms of methodologies between those of us, whether we're quantitatively inclined or qualitatively inclined, see ourselves as pretty rigorous researchers. We believe in scientific research. Right? Um, and then there are another group, um, institutional researchers, who are very important in our field, uh, practitioner researchers. Um, uh, and again, I think there's some kind of interesting tensions potentially uh, between us in terms of the methodology we've got. Um, uh, it relates, I think, the orientation of that relates to kind of criticality again, the ability to be critical. Um, it may relate to just simple things like being objective with the evidence and so on. Um, on the other hand, if we are going to influence policymakers, particularly in the current climate, we probably do have to be fairly partisan and pretty engaged. Um, so I think there's lots of interesting things happening there. Um, so, if we want to influence policy, what can we do about it? Well, I've uh, identified four sort of broad strands. One is sort of going beyond impact in the narrow REF sense and thinking more in terms of accessibility, making our research more accessible. Because frankly, if, we, if it's not accessible, it's not going to influence many people. And maybe that's rather incremental, uh, rather pedestrian, the kind of things that one might do. Um, then, rather unfairly, I've second group, I've got the policy groupies. The people want to get really close to policy makers um, who die for invitations to brief ministers um, and so on and make a big, big thing of all that kind of world. Um, uh, I'm being unfair to their motivation. Uh, but I think you know what it is. It's getting pretty, very close to policy. Um, uh, then a third. Um, thing is to kind of open it all out and think in terms of kind of opening open research communities, communities of engagement more generally. Um, and actually if this is pursued in a certain kinds of ways, it's become quite a democratic alternative to these rather tight policy networks, short-term policy networks. And the fourth strategy is to kind of wash our hands of all this and say, look, our business is to produce rigorous research, really high quality academic research. Um, we need to tell truth to power. If power doesn't listen to us in the short run, well, that's power's problem. It's not our problem. We shouldn't compromise. Anyway, those are very crude terms, sort of, for strategies that I've uh, suggested. First one, well, they're, they're kind of simple things. I mean, you know, we have to write in a very different kind of way. Um, uh, I find this all the time. I mean, when I kind of write academically, I write in one way, my sentence is much longer, and then sometimes I have to write once a month for The Guardian. And if I wrote that way, it would get chucked back at me. They wouldn't be interested in that. They're not interested in kind of weighing the evidence. They want it to be very kind of shrill, frankly, very clear, very simplified, no nuances, no qualifications, no on the other hands. 
Um, now, that's quite difficult to adopt that kind of journalistic form of writing, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, if you're actually going to write in a way, it's not just producing a rather brief executive summary in which you remove most of the worst examples of academic jargon. It's more than that. You've actually got to write as a journalist. Now, do we want to write as journalists? I mean, um, well, some of us do, I know. Um, but is that a kind of natural extension of, of research dissemination? Um, then I think we can think in terms of the research design. Um, we can think of involving people more extensively in, 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 in uh, uh, what we do uh, and how we do it. Um, then there's presentation. I mean, back to the, you know, the key points, making it available to people who have very limited time to read things. Um, uh, publication. Um, I mentioned open source earlier, um, not open source in the rather narrow sense that we talked about now, but actually in non-referable journals. I mean, we're very focused on you know publishing in the right journals with the right citation profiles and so on. Um, uh, and actually, if we want to move as policymakers, we've got to move away from that agenda. I mean, we've got to write a lot of stuff in in contexts which actually aren't going to do our academic careers a lot of good, frankly. Um, uh, and then dissemination, we've got to put a lot more resource into dissemination. It's not just, you know, the final meeting of the steering group and a press conference, maybe, which no one really turns up, um, which is sort of how dissemination, I'm being a bit unfair, but a lot of dissemination research projects is a bit like that. Um, I think we have to think, we're spending an awful lot of the resource, a much higher proportion of the resource we have for research on dissemination. Um, just as universities are going to have to spend an awful lot more money on marketing and branding than they've been traditionally used to. And that, again, is going to require. So there's a whole number of things you can do that thing to sort of just make our research more accessible. It's kind of incremental. It's kind of raising our game a bit um, in the hope that we'll get noticed a bit more. Uh, then we come on to the policy groupies. And here I guess you have a series of pluses and minuses. I mean, uh, well, we do potentially make ourselves much more relevant to policy communities. Uh, we're bound to, aren't we? Because we're accepting their agenda. Um, we hope that, not just accepting their agenda, but we might, when we get really close to them and they really trust us, um, that actually we might influence their agenda. I'm talking a bit cynically there, and I say we hope, because I'm not sure the dynamic we bring, the pressures we bring, I think they're very trivial compared to the other pressures on politicians um, and so on. Um, they hope, of course, that they are going to reshape research strategies and research priorities in universities. Um, uh, I can still remember, um, uh, 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 he was a Conservative minister um, quite a while ago. Um, he was the, the minister for higher education. Um, and he got me in the corner on occasion and said, but surely you believe that at least 25% of the research in British universities is a complete waste of time. Um, I was slightly thrown by this, and the only answer I could come up with, in retrospect, I thought it was not a bad answer, was this, actually, I probably do agree with you, but we would never actually agree about which 25%. Um, uh, but they hope that they can kind of focus research agendas, um, get rid of the stuff they don't want, and, and just get us to focus our energies. Um, but there are downsides to this, aren't there? I mean, one of the downsides is that we would be, in the great phrase, on tap, not on top. Um, well, we perhaps never aspire to be on top, but at least we aspire to be independent. Um, but essentially, they would be their questions, not our questions, that we'd be researching into. Um, and a key bit, it seems to be, of the independence of research, the value of research, is actually simply the identification of the questions. And if you give up on that, and someone else is doing that, and you just take them off the shelf from someone else, you've actually abandoned quite a substantial part of the research process. And then simply there was the seduction, the proximity of, to power, or what we assume to be power. I mean, power is corrupting. There's no doubt about that. I mean, politicians themselves are corrupted by it, and all the people surrounding politicians are corrupted about it to some extent. And we can always find justifications. We are making compromises now, which we acknowledge for the, for the future when we will have more influence and more access and we'll be able to put things right. So that's the second kind of strategy, what I call perhaps unfairly, being a policy groupie. Um, then one that's much more diffuse, um, that kind of creating more open communities, <coughs> not operating in a kind of narrow research community, um, but particularly in relation to practitioners, kind of 
strengthening the kind of research practice nexus. And this is obviously particularly the case, I think, in learning and teaching. Um, uh, the idea that there are no, that we have open functions, we're not a closed community. Um, we are all sort of higher education researchers now. Now there are risks in that, of course, because if we feel we are a weakly institutionalized and an underfunded field in the first place, if you adopt this rather open strategy, you actually lose perhaps some of the coherence and strength that you currently have. Um, and then another risk, of course, is going beyond obje objectivity. Um, uh, uh, we are accepting the reality of engaged activist research. Now, I think there's a, quite a role for activist research in many ways, provided it's not just activist research in the sense of pleasing powerful policy communities, but more broadly. Um, and it does open the possibility for kind of negotiated agendas in which kind of communities uh, of practice, perhaps wider communities outside the campus entirely, um, are actively engaged. I mean, uh, it's very interesting, I think, if you look at a lot of the research into widened participation. We treat most of the people we talk to um, in those countries as kind of objects of our research. Um, we don't often treat them as kind of active participants in our research people who can shape our research genders. Um, so it's sort of what we can do to them and how we can find out more about them so they can be fitted in, melded in more with the university experience rather than actually a more radical project which might be actually people bringing quite different kind of genders and how they might actually change the university experience um, and so on. And I, and I said and corporate goals because sometimes of course a very important part of the community will be the boss class in higher education if I can put it like that corporate strategy development. I mean, in a sense, one of the major kind of um, customers for institutional research are planning departments and people like that. Um, and that brings a lot of risks as well, brings kind of the agendas, the corporate agendas of the organization, uh, which may not at all conform to those of the, uh, uh, the research community. So that's, but that's broadly a third strategy, a very diffuse one you can think of, I think, in in quite sort of focused corporate authoritarian ways, but also I think you can think of it in more open and democratic ways. Um, and the final one is that we'll just give up on this. You know, we don't want to influence policy if the price is too high. Um, uh, you know, the old Vedan kind of complex, they shall not pass. You know, um, uh, no surrender. Uh, and that we must actually stick to the idea of complexity, complexity in Ron's terms, but complexity more generally. I mean, that, that research problems, this is a complex world there. And actually to boil it down to very simple messages is not always easy and it's not always right to do so. Um, but of course, that's no interest to policymakers. They don't want kind of muddled messages as they would see it. They want very clear messages. Um, then I think if we need to tell them, well, here I stand, the kind of Martin Luther thing, I can do no other. You know, that this is what the research says. This is what the evidence is. Um, and I'm not prepared to kind of modify that evidence or tailor it or kind of dress it up in certain ways that detract from that evidence. Um, uh, then I think there's a very important role for research in thinking the unthinkable. I mean, in a sense, that's what universities are about. Unthinkable in terms of kind of um, uh, what policymakers think is feasible. So going beyond current agendas, and given that current agendas, as I had mentioned earlier about this very, despite this brawling political culture we have, this rather narrow, predetermined kind of consensus in which can, one can make choices and manoeuvre, um, it's really important to try and open that up and, and go beyond that. Um, it's also very important to rescue what I call suppressed agendas, because there's always power relationships in society, and there are some agendas which have as great legitimacy as the agendas of the powerful, and they will never get the airtime. And the risk is if you become too over-addicted to policy research, and you get too close to policymakers, then actually you begin to adopt their perspective towards what I call suppressed alternative agendas. And I'm not sure, paradoxically, I think, a kind of an academic, more rigorous strategy can actually help to kind of uh, preserve alternative. And then the kind of long revolution. I mean, policy, we can follow the short-term ups and downs of policy. Um, uh, Claire Callender, I just edited a book on the, on the white paper, which some people in the room have contributed to. Um, 
Uh, well, that's all very interesting, but it's all pretty short-term, really. Um, uh, in ten years' time, will this be seen as a milestone? Or are there other things driving higher education, social change in a more profound sense, um, intellectual change within disciplines, but not just within disciplines, in, in the world, wider, more intellectual world. Um, big things like demography, which we're all aware of, kind of region. All these things are dri driving change in the higher education in a more powerful way, potentially, than some of these ups and downs of politics. Um, because when we talk about policy, we're usually talking about short-term politics nowadays. Um, uh, so, it's paradoxically, again, we might be doing policy research a favour by standing back, being rigorous, and thinking longer term. Right, I've almost finished. Uh, I think this is my... And this is my final thing about... I think if you're talking about policy research, there's a kind of... The idea of proximity is very important. We're trying to get close to the powerful people, the people that make a difference, and actually shape policy. And of course there are upsides to that. I mean, if we fashion our research agendas in that kind of way, and we produce the kind of outputs in a way which are more accessible, we probably do have more immediate impact on policy. But at least we have a chance of having an impact on policy. Um, uh, we probably get increased funding, and maybe nowadays, given the funding regime, there's no choice. I think all of us have to do some of this kind of research, however pure we might be, because frankly that's where an awful lot of the money is nowadays, um, and we wouldn't be able to do any research if we were not prepared to at least make certain compromises in that direction. Then, and the third one is also positive, I mean there is something to be said for the kind of the real world, you know, I mean, uh, if you look at the way that institutions are, uh, are uh, the kind of grit, um, the reality of kind of institutional life and management of institutions and how they have to work as organizations and you contrast that to some of the rather theoretical analysis of new public management and so on which we're all very familiar with and which we all love um, and there's a bit of a disconnect there isn't there really I mean you wouldn't put some of these people who are writing these rather nice articles in charge of much would you? I mean, perhaps I'm displaying a prejudice there and I'll be contradicted um, but then, of course, there were big downsides. There was a Faustian bargain here uh, between power and truth. Um, there is a contrast between trying to imagine beyond what is currently available, um, trying to create new concepts, new ideas, and the ideological constraints, which one has to accept to be uh, accepted in politics. There probably is a kind of dilution of scientific rigor. I mean, we are going to pull our punches sometime for the sake of impact. Um, because we know that if we come up with the answer that politicians don't like or don't quite like, it's not quite the answer they were expecting, there's probably not going to be return in terms of funding. They're not going to come, you're not going to get, do yourself any chance, any favours when it comes to applying for future research. And then finally, and the point I want to leave you with, I think it's really important in research to kind of imagine other futures. Um, uh, whether these are grounded in intellectual terms, whether they're grounded in terms of alternative policy agendas, suppressed agendas that people have, and so on. It's really important that we engage with all of that um, and to focus on the agendas of the currently powerful and influential uh, can have a very, very demoralizing effect, but also a kind of narrowing effect on the creativity of higher education research. Now, I'm going to stop at that point. Um, I'm sure many of you will not like what I've said, um, or disagree with it, but uh, I'd be interested to hear your comments. Thank you.